It's a privilege to preach this morning from a series from Philippians, Joyful Living. And thank you to Phil, who's read the scriptures for us this morning. Back in 1993-1994, I was in, living in southern Africa, in Zimbabwe. I was on a gap year with, the, with BMS World Mission, and I was having a brilliant time. And it was an adventure and challenging and was a, a real formative time in, in my life. And, and in that time, heard the Lord calling me into ministry, into the kind of the life and the, the following Jesus that that has led me to in ministry now. And back then, if you can cast your mind back, and I just want to kind of set the scene for our younger members of the fellowship, it was in the days before Wi-Fi and mobile telephones. Uh, even saying that, kind of telephones, we don't talk about telephones, but in those days we did, and there was no FaceTime or WhatsApp or Skype. I'd obviously write letters, and they'd take over a week to get back, so you'd write one letter, and it would be over a fortnight before you kind of got a reply. But I remember on Christmas Day, 1993, I had the opportunity to make a phone call home to wish uh, my family a very happy Christmas. And it was one of those old phones, the old type with a big plastic receiver you had to pick up and put to your ear. And uh, I'll, I'll let Pete have an image for our younger members to see what something prehistoric looks like. Anyway, I'm sure as older folk, you can remember what they are like of the dialing and the waiting for the dial to scroll back on each number that you'd, you'd dial in. And an international number obviously was, was really long. So I picked up this thing, I dialed my family number. It didn't connect the first time from Bulawayo to uh, Sheffield. The second time it did, you'll probably remember the echo and the delay and the buzzing hiss of the intercontinental connections and you'll probably wince when I remind you how expensive those calls used to cost. Anyway, I remember Christmas Day having that brief conversation with my family. It was a little bit weird because there was such a delay on the, the line. It was months since I'd heard their voice. And it was amazing. It peaked homesickness on that first Christmas away from home. But I remember saying to them over those brief sentences, I want you to know that I'm having a brilliant time. I'm loving it, but I am missing your Christmas dinner, Mum. I want you to know that. So often we use those phrases in communication. If it's a postcard from a holiday, that old school thing to do, maybe even a letter. Uh, maybe even we're now using social media. We're kind of saying, I want you to know that I'm here. This is what it looks like. This is what's going on in my life. And that phrase, I want you to know that, forms a really key part of Paul's writing to the church in Philippi. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that. Paul is in prison somewhere. Maybe it's not yet in Rome. We'd find that at the end of the story in Acts of where he ends up. But we know from the story of Acts that he was arrested a number of times and imprisoned. He was in chains. But since he'd left Philippi, since he'd planted that church, 
News had seeped back to his family, his sisters and brothers in Philippi, that he was in prison, he was in chains. And his family wanted to know what was going on. They were concerned. How is Paul? What's it like? What does being chained look like for him? Is he okay? Did he have any physical needs? And the Philippine church loved Paul. And so they gathered together a gift to help him practically, maybe for food or, or some attention. And they sent Epaphroditus. We find that later in the, in the letter, chapter 2 uh, and chapter 4 particularly. They sent Epaphroditus with their letter, their gift for his comfort. And of course, Paul was thankful. And he writes back this letter and sends it back with Epaphroditus. And he says, I want you to know that. I wonder when that letter, that manuscript arrived back with the Fellowship of Believers and they read it together. I wonder what they were expecting to hear. If it was me writing from then, from chains, from prison, I wonder what I might have written. I want you to know that there's rats. I can't always see them. It's dark, but I can hear them. The bread is mostly stale. The chains are making my wrists sore. It smells here, and I won't describe the overflowing buckets. Too much info. It's dark. It's damp. And I've lost my freedom. But that's not what Paul writes. There's no description of his conditions. There's no kind of a, a summary of his particular experience in chains. His focus, what he writes, is entirely somewhere else. There's no news on whether he's warm or cold, sick or well, being treated with cruelty or kindness. I want you to know that. That what matters, says Paul, even despite my circumstances, and he doesn't major on them, he gives us nothing really about them. I want you to know that what matters is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is being preached. He wants them to know how the gospel is doing, the impact, the good news that is arriving through the words. Now, in this uh, section that Phil has read, that we're focusing particularly on the first bit, but it's, a, it's one section in the scriptures uh, that he says in uh, verse 12, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And at the end of that little section, in verse 25, we, uh, we find these words. Convinced of this, I know that you will remain and will continue with all of you your progress for the joy in the faith. That that sense of progress and advance in the, the, the words that Paul uses in Greek to the church in Philippi are the same word, the same phrase. It's a word that talks about the advancement of the gospel through all circumstances. It's like a, a bookend to this little section reminding them of these things about the advancement of the gospel. And he says, I want you to know that imprisonment and the trials that he's going through have not stopped the gospel. That Paul is in chains 
His liberty is curtailed, but the gospel has gone forward unfettered. It's not hindered by the things that might physically constrain us. Jesus works not merely in spite of, but through the adverse circumstances Paul is experiencing. And by implication, through the rest of Scripture and indeed our own understanding and our own journey of faith, we see this again and again. That Jesus works in us and through us, not merely in spite of, but through whatever situation we may find ourselves in. Isn't that amazing? That what could appear on surface level in the eyes of the world, in the, the eyes of rational logic, to be stupid or foolish or an impediment or an entire thing that would prevent and undermine. Yet for God, those aren't things that hinder. Even in prison, even though he's not able to be in the synagogues and the marketplace and, and making his tents and meeting people and having opportunities to pray and speak of Jesus, still the gospel goes forward. He's able to share with those who are guarding him. Imprisonment and trial don't stop the gospel. He wants us to know that. And he references these two slightly strange situations. There's obviously something going on where he's imprisoned. There's something challenging. He's saying that there are those who are motivated with boldness because of Paul's example. That as they have seen Paul's faith, his courage, and he urges them later on to imitate me. There are others who've been called and rallied to this. And he says, they are the ones who've got goodwill and are, are acting out of love and of true motives. But he also says that he knows that there are those too around who are motivated by a different agenda of envy and rivalry, of selfish ambition and false motives. Maybe they are wanting to, to become more important in the eyes of others. And so they're, they're belittling what Paul has done. He's in prison, not much of a gospel, hey? But the way Paul writes it, he kind of puts them in balance and says, actually, both of them in preaching the gospel are enhancing and, and bringing and advancing the gospel. This is good. He's not focused on those who, he, who are perhaps being competitive and rivalry and maybe using Paul as the stepping stone for their own advances. He says the gospel is good. And he rejoices that the words of life are coming. Now, it's worth noting that he doesn't, I don't think these are the Judaizers that he is very against. He says they're not preaching the gospel at all. Uh, he talks about them in Galatians and other places. But maybe it's people, there's a bit of rivalry, a bit of kind of one-upmanship going on in the early church. Paul's not distracted by that. His focus is entirely on Jesus and that the good news is shared. He wants us to know that imprisonment and trial don't stop the gospel. I'll come back to that in a little moment. He also wants us to know that suffering doesn't count as out. Suffering's one of those really difficult issues. None of us like it. They are, when we look back at life, are some of the, the most challenging times. 
suffering personally, suffering as a church. It can stir up fear. Suffering can provoke us to question deeply, shall we continue or give up? But Paul's writing in this letter of joyful living reminds us that even in the midst of suffering, the gospel is the most important aspect of life. It truly is. Paul's example in what he writes, I want you to know that, is for the believers, you and I, to be encouraged to take a stand for the gospel, to share uh, faith with daring and fearlessness, despite, in the midst of, what's going on. It's just worth underlining this point. That for those who look on for the unbelieving community or those who've got a skewed understanding of Jesus, you can think, really, is, is crucifixion the way of God? God doesn't die. God can't suffer. And yet just last week at Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we read the scriptures again and understood afresh that the Son of God, Jesus, embracing our humanity as one of us, suffered the agony and brutality of the cross, entered into that in order to rescue us. God suffers. Jesus was crucified. It's not the case as Pilate and the Roman soldiers shouted from the sidelines, saying, if you are really the son of God, God would rescue him. Come down from the cross. You're all powerful. You should be unaffected by this. Equally for Paul. If Paul were really an apostle and a mighty man of God, these painful and humiliating defeats wouldn't be happening, would they? He'd rise above them. He'd be immune to them. He would have special status. You see, so often we have somewhere lodged in our mind this, this uh, link, this kind of correlation that, that there's a, a link between the kind of person you are and what you experience. If you're good, good things will happen. If you do bad, bad things will happen. That if you're faithful in your faith, God will bless you and it will all go well. But if you're sinful or you've got something hidden, then watch out. You're going to stumble. When you drill down to that, it's more about karma. That's more about cause and effect. That's more about some sort of cosmic law rather than the gracious, compassionate God. It isn't true that if we follow Jesus and put our full trust in him, then we will be blessed with entire health and prosperity. Paul is wanting the church in Philippi Philippi, to know that. That for Paul, he was walking closely with Jesus. He was in Christ, in the blessing of of God, yet he is in chains. The gospel can get you arrested. It might happen to us. What's the point of being a Christian anyway, the Philippians may be thinking, if this is what it gets you, to be denied liberty and freedom, to be ridiculed, to be opposed. So Paul needs to help them understand what it means to be in chains. 
Suffering and injustice, even death, can be endured if we can make sense of it. If we can see that it isn't senseless, that it doesn't mean we're outside of God's plan and favor, that actually God is in the midst of suffering too. What does this look like in reality? Well, if if you cast your mind back through so many stories of church history and the privilege we've had many times as a church to hear stories of the persecuted church, you see this again and again. Our predominance in the West is to avoid suffering and weakness. But remember, God works through weakness. I was very struck at a Standing Strong event of hearing of a sister from North Korea who would be able, the only time she'd be able to sing a song of praise whispered so quietly was when she was cleaning the latrines for the whole of the camp. Because that, no one else would wanted to be in that smelly, fly, fetid place. And yet that was her holy place. And she would sing Amazing Grace and so forth. And other prisoners, other people in those camps began to hear and notice. And that was the place they would gather in the most awful physical, yet the most beautifully holy spiritual place too. The Lord was with them. God works through weakness. For half a century in the 20th century, communism in the Eastern Bloc and the former Soviet Union, they would seek to stamp out and belittle and ridicule and go to every human effort to thwart the church, the believers of what God was doing. And yet God used that pressure cooker, that crucible of suffering, and good came through it. Despite the imprisonment and the torture and the execution of Christians, despite massive re-education efforts of the communists, particularly focusing upon young people, that religion was foolish and for the weak, they had to recognize in the 1980s that they'd failed. They'd arrested the leaders and the, and the people with profile and those that they could target, and yet the individual believers, the sisters and brothers in the homes and the workplaces and the factories maybe couldn't speak about it much, but that personal faith, that conviction of living out that gospel could not be stamped out or removed. It was the ordinary believers, and the church grew. Remarkable. That God, when they kind of began to survey, had they managed to quash and, and reduce and, and, and purge the communist um, society of Christians, far from it. They'd multiplied, they'd grow. Faith prevailed. We see that in the story of China and we continue to pray for our sisters and brothers as, as that persecution increases. In Cuba, in 35 years of oppression, someone did a survey of the Methodist churches and the believers. In, in, the, in the 60s, there were only about 6,000 um, Christians in the Methodist church, hard-pressed. But 35 years later, there were over 50,000 
Methodists. Why? Why did that happen when the oppression and the challenge and the difficulties were stacked high? Many reasons. But one they drew a point of noting was this. That those people who were indoctrinated in communism and, and taking on board that which the culture and the leaders and society were saying to be true, people grew tired of it. They grew tired of that atheistic line, there is no God. They grew tired of saying, well, our purpose and fulfillment is found in this particular thing or that. They realized it was empty. And they began to turn back to the church, to the faithful believers, for a more satisfying answer. Christians there, of course, were barred from, barred from being part of university and were overlooked for jobs and, and they weren't able to be educated. But the faithful endured and the church grew. I want you to know that. For Paul in prison, I want you to know this. And he says, I want you to know that joy comes from the gospel. Joy comes from the gospel. Don't mishear what I've just said. It's not that we say, bring on the suffering. That would be masochistic. That would be weird. There's not joy for Paul in imprisonment and not really joy for Paul in suffering. But actually the joy that is his is in the gospel. That the gospel is good news, that it's life-bringing and life-changing and life-shaping. And it is the way and the fullness of life and the truth. That's what brings him joy. He's not relishing the opposition or the hardships. The suffering is real, yes. And that that suffering is not necessarily good. But Paul is adamant that Jesus is the goal and he is worth it. You see, this joy is not giggly or, or, or simply passing happiness. But this joy that Paul speaks of is settled peace from a clear focus of life in and from and because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, even in the most challenging of times. One of the things I try to do from time to time is read example stories of, of sisters and brothers, ordinary people like you and I, who have walked the walk, who have remained courageous and bold. I remember reading a few years ago the, um, the biography, the story of Jim Elliot, and he wrote, his wife actually wrote the book Through Gates of Splendor. You may know a famous quote from Jim Elliot. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliot was a young man from America with a group of fellow believers, courageous and bold, and, and took up to heart the idea that they wanted to go and reach people who hadn't yet been reached for the gospel, go into all the world and make disciples. And so in their university time, as they researched and prayed, they realized that just south of um, their nation in the United States was a country called Ecuador. And in Ecuador were some unreached people groups, tribes, and, uh, including the Auca Indians. 
And so they set about moving themselves as young adults to set about learning language and, and reaching these unreached trials, uh, tribes. But in their story, their first encounter, Jim Elliot and others, their first encounter, four of them were killed by the Indians. Pierced by arrows and left on the riverbank for dead. Jim's wife Elizabeth obviously was mourning and wondering with a small child what to do in this foreign country so far away from support, suffering the loss of her husband and, and their hopes and their ideal of what might happen as they reach this people group with the good news and their first encounter was devastating. And yet, she'd grasped that she wanted to know that, and in writing the story for us to know that, that isn't the end. There is a bigger purpose. Elizabeth, the widow of, of Jim, a few years later made second contact with the tribe and this time took their young daughter Valerie to live among them and in so doing there was kind of a welcome that they learned their language she tried to work out how to to learn to write it and began to explain the stories of Jesus the gospel to them she writes that despite the hardship and the physical uh, and emotional challenges of life in the jungle amongst the people whose language and culture she neither any other outsider understood she persevered, and that people group began to turn to Jesus through her faithful obedience in the midst of struggle. I want you to know that. I want you to know that joy comes from the gospel. I want you to know that suffering isn't a sign of God's displeasure that actually through suffering God can be at work powerfully because others see that it stands others see that we're not counted out others begin to perceive the very presence of God in us and I want you to know that imprisonment and the loss of our freedoms doesn't curtail the gospel what might be the chains for us And what ways maybe the gospel can be advanced through us? Maybe it's the ridicule of family and, and members and friends because of our commitment to Jesus. That we're chained by that and we, we're locked in by it, thinking if only my husband or wife or my family were more supportive of my faith. If only my children embraced this fully, we could be amazingly fruitful for the Lord, perhaps. But I want you to know that you can be fruitful in the midst of where you are now. What are the chains? Maybe it's alienation from wider society. Maybe it's because we live in a secular world and it's getting more and more secularized and no one wants to hear this. Interesting, wasn't it, that 
on Easter Sunday, we, we watched it as a SAF team this week, Boris Johnson made an Easter statement and it was full of the gospel, but I don't recall it being aired anywhere, at least on the national bulletins. The Labour leader visiting a church in London and, and sort of partly recognising the amazing good that, that churches up and down this country have been supporting communities through lockdown. But that issue wasn't majored on something else became the headline. I want you to know that. Hold fast. I want you to know that. Stay courageous and faithful in the midst of a society that is saying, no, 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 there's another way. Because again and again, it will prove to be false and shallow and empty. The gospel is true. What might our chains be? Maybe it's the challenge for churches, communities of faith, not to so accommodate to the world and its culture that shackles us to a thought pattern or a way of life or a perception about how things are. We live in an era of comfort and choice and consumerism. Unless it's just what I like, then I'll find somewhere else. I don't want to be disturbed or challenged. Or if it's not what I want or see in other places or, or all that kind of thing, well, I'll opt out, I'll withdraw. It doesn't seem to be the model and the pattern of what Paul wants us to know. Maybe it's the whole challenge of wealth and possessions and, and, and materialism in the West. How generous can we be? What are our chains? I want you to know this, Paul writes. And through it all, as I conclude, this lovely little phrase in verse 18. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. May the Lord bless you and stir you through his word.